0: He kōna e purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kāke mai, and welcome to this hour-changing world podcast from RNZ. Peter Griffin is in search of yeast. That's because yeast is a versatile and useful ingredient, and not just in bread. It's
1: summer. It's hot. For many of us, there's nothing like a cold beer to cool us down, or maybe a glass of wine. Our craft beer industry is booming, and our winemakers are renowned worldwide, with $1.8 billion in exports last year. There are four key ingredients to make beer. Water, malt, hops, and yeast. And yeast is critical. Scientists suggest it accounts for up to 50% of the taste profile of beer and wine. A lot of the yeast used here in New Zealand for beer making is imported from the US and Europe, but a couple of Wellington entrepreneurs are setting out to change that. Simon Cook and Ryan Carville from Froth Technologies are two Wellington-based friends and home brewing enthusiasts who have set up the country's first dedicated yeast lab growing yeast for the beer industry. But they're not stopping there. They're experimenting with yeasts collected from isolated areas of New Zealand to see if they can capture the taste of our natural landscape and find out if it's something worth bottling. I joined them in the lab to see how you go about growing yeasts to make beer. So Ryan, we're standing in the yeast lab. It's a pretty small room. It's above a Turkish cafe on um, Dixon Street in Wellington. Talk us through what you've got here. What sort of equipment have you got? In the corner there you have a a
2: medium-sized sort of vat. What's Mm -hmm. going on with that? Sure. So that is uh, one of our yeast propagation vessels. That is the final vessel for our current uh, extent of our production. So within that, um, we put 100 litres of uh, basic yeast food, essentially. And in that tank, we're growing up enough yeast to ferment 1,000 litres of beer. So that's the final stage of the production. It starts out in one of these flasks. Um, from there, we step it up into one of these uh, smaller propagation vessels that are basically a, a keg, and then into the tank. And as we feed it more sugar, it grows and replicates and builds up the population so that there's enough to ferment a commercial batch of beer. So that's effectively what the yeast are consuming—is sugar. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They they eat sugar, and as they do so, they bud out and um, increase the population and stay healthy. And yeah. What is this device here? Uh, so this is a shaker table. Uh, we use this for our small scale propagations um, to make sure that yeast uh, is agitated and stays in suspension within the liquid that we 're feeding it and how
1: stable are yeast? How easy is it to 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 multiply and grow
2: yeast um they're they're a pretty um pretty effective microbe at at growing themselves. So essentially, as long as you're feeding them and um, creating uh, favourable conditions, so some of those variables around that are nutrients that they require, um, temperature, um, oxygen, um, and they're the big ones really for ensuring that they're ideal conditions for yeast to grow. If you make sure that you're hitting all those marks, the yeast is going to flourish. And, of course, it needs the food, the sugar itself. So what's the real inspiration behind this business?
1: You're obviously passionate about beer. Um, but about yeast, uh, how did that come about?
2: Both of us have been heavily involved in the craft industry for nearly a decade. Um, and along that journey, we've become really aware of the uh, importance for fresh local ingredients and how that can impact the um, final product of beer and take it from a, uh, a good product to a great one. And through that journey, we um, found a lot of pains in trying to find local yeast because there essentially isn't any in New
1: Zealand. What typically happens now, yeast is an essential ingredient in beer obviously but we're importing all of this, where does it come from and why haven't we been doing
2: this earlier? Uh, Yeast is arguably the most important ingredient in beer, it takes uh, the sweet liquid that brewers make and and turns it into beer by fermenting it. Uh, Currently all that yeast is coming from labs either in the States or in Europe primarily uh, and uh, yeah, so there's some barriers with that. Obviously, New Zealand being far away away from those places. Uh, and in regards to why it hasn't been done here yet, there's a couple of elements. Um, one of which is market maturity. Our craft beer market and brewing in general in New Zealand is relatively young in comparison with other countries. Uh, and the second part of that is that it's um, reasonably difficult. There's a high technical element to it. Um, it's you know working to higher uh, hygiene standards than you would as a brewer. And uh, there's, yeah, a lot a lot riding on producing pure cultures of yeast. So, Simon, take us through what characteristics do yeast give
1: beer? It's about flavour, but it's about effervescence and other things as well, I assume?
3: Mm. So most people will know that yeast converts sugar into alcohol, uh, so there's obviously a bit of a psychoactive effect there. It all pres- also produces CO2, so we're, those are the bubbles and... Texture that we can get in a beer. Um, further to that, there's flavour and, and, and aroma compounds, and so these are produced by the yeast during fermi- fermentation. They're byproducts, um, and this is kind of yeast's evolutionary way over time to attract uh, bugs and things like that, into by mimicking ripe fruit or other um, or sp- spices or things like this. Um, it's it's a reproductive. Evolutionary trait, so that bugs will land in their area, and they can um, move around to different parts of of the environment. Um, just so turns out that banana and tropical fruit and spices and floral notes are also appealing to humans, and so that's how we've um, th- that yeast is really beneficial to beer that we can get a a fuller flavour profile and um, the yeast can actually interact with the other ingredients to promote or suppress these flavour compounds into greater and more diverse ways. So
1: is it fair to say at the moment your, your real edge you have in being the first to do this is sort of price, that you're more competitive than having to import this stuff and all the, I suppose, all the biosecurity stuff that goes along with that, but down the track you want to actually come up with different types of yeast with different taste characteristics?
3: That's right, yeah. Um, for brewers currently, with yeast being such a perishable product, it goes off or dies very quickly. To get it to New Zealand from the US or Europe, it has to be sent here via refrigerated air freight, which is a high cost and a, a cost to the environment too, unnecessary carbon emissions. For us, um, our initial advantage is, is localising where we're so close that the yeast can get to you a lot fresher. So you've got the, the true cell counts that it says on the bottle. Um, the longer it's been from manufacturer or leaving the lab, the, the less alive cells you're going to have in there and yeah, our signature move is going to be some diversity of strains that we have up our sleeves some of which will hopefully be local wild New Zealand strains but also some really interesting stuff from other parts of the world With our R&D project we're looking to see what Aotearoa as a flavour expression can look like We're looking to promote conservation and environmentalism by bringing people closer to nature, and and often that means meeting them where they're at, which sometimes could be the pub. So the idea there is sort of using flavour as a medium for storytelling, allowing people to connect uh, with and be a bit closer with nature through flavour. And perhaps there's an invitation there of, by being closer, we care more about it and perhaps go visit a dock hut or go to a national park and it could it could really start with a pint of beer. So will you literally go
1: into remote parts of New Zealand to, to gather yeast and see what different types of characteristics they have?
3: Yeah, totally. I mean, before we do anything, uh, obviously the right thing to do is to have conversations with iwi and with dock. Um, I have whakapapa and my lineage draws from Ngai Tahu in the South Island, so um, I've always... Um, kept in conversation them, with them as I've been building this business. And, yeah, once, once we've taken the necessary steps and had the appropriate conversations in that space, but, yeah, basically that'll look like us out in nature uh, getting close to the environment, finding remote places away from breweries because we don't want to be taking samples that just have domesticated yeast on, which is entirely possible. And, basically, yeah, we're looking for unique... Flowers, fruits and so on and we'll be taking those samples into small vials or flasks and they'll go back to our R&D lab where we will um, be isolating them out and seeing what they can do.
1: Dr. Fuarhana Pinu is a senior scientist at Plant and Food Research based in Auckland. She's part of a team at Plant and Food that studies the taste profile of yeasts and has worked in particular with the wine industry to develop new yeasts used in the fermenting process that can produce novel wine flavours. I wanted to find out more about how yeasts influence the taste of wine and beer. You've worked a lot with yeasts over the years, let's go really back to basics what exactly are yeasts?
4: Okay, so um, So they are really tiny microorganisms that actually part of our everyday life, if you think about your marmite, that is also yeast and if you think about our bread it's made from yeast, so those are the tiny microorganisms that we use um, uh, to produce different kind of food and beverages um, and we use them as I said, every day
1: And when it comes to wine and beer, they play this crucial role. They convert sugar into alcohol, which we like in our alcoholic beverages.
4: Well, yes, their main role is definitely converting the sugar into alcohol. But if you think about the flavor and smell and how they taste, so they produce those other things too.
1: That's what it's all about when it comes to a you know, great glass of Pinot Noir, or something like that, you know, it's, it's flavour profile. But how does that actually happen? You've got all these yeasts out there in the wilds, coating the grapes all over the vineyard. Uh, so how does that actually influence the taste profile of a, a glass of wine?
4: I have to go back actually 10,000 years. So if you think um, that fermentation perspective um, of any food, And it's really the oldest biotechnological area. These days when we make a wine or beer we actually inoculate our ferment with a specific yeast that we know what kind of wine or beer they produce but if you produce it naturally like spontaneous fermentation then it's just not only one one strain or one yeast is going to impact it, that's a co- or that's one of the things we call microbiome so it's a combination, a community of microorganisms not necessarily yeast, other microorganisms too, so they can actually produce different ranges of um, aroma compounds, so it depends what kind of uh, final product you want, depending on that, a lot of winery or even the brewery they actually experiment what kind of um, final product they want. So, depending on that, you can actually choose. There are a lot of uh, commercial yeast strains out there, uh, you can buy them from the you know different companies, or you can actually grow your own if you know how to do it. So even starting from, say, you have some grape berries or even from winery, if you know there are some wild yeast that might be giving you better or complex um, aroma profile, then you can actually choose that.
1: So you've actually been doing this in the lab. You've been collecting yeast samples from around New Zealand. You've been isolating them looking at their taste profiles. What's the actual process of doing that, from finding these yeasts to actually figuring out what you want in terms of t- taste?
4: So the process, if you say that how we do that in the lab, is like uh, there are a lot of steps. We, you collect them and then you grow them. You see how they smell, do a lot of chemical analysis. And based on that, you can select different kind of yeast that um, you prefer the smells or that is more comfortable for particular wine. Um, And based on that, actually, you can do some strain improvement because all the natural yeast that we can find from the different sources, they might not be stable enough to finish a fermentation. And this is why the inoculation part, like the um, commercial winery, they do inoculate because they don't want to take the risk because they want consistent uh, production of good quality wine or beer, then you have to make sure that you know all the steps. So as a scientist, we actually do that part. So we try to select um, different kind of strains or microorganisms that are stable enough to produce different kind of flavour profiles that actually consumers like.
1: And I've heard scientists say when it comes to yeast you can detect, you know, Parmesan cheese, butter, soy sauce so it really is coming down it's quite subjective down to people's taste, isn't it?
4: Yeah, and so um, I, we are actually working towards um, a new area I would say, we, we are calling it personalised wine production um, and as you said, even, even one person for you, maybe you like like the parmesan kind of smell in your wine, but I might not like it. You know so we have our different um, preferential flavor um, you know profile as well so depending on and if you think about ethnicity as well different ethnic people like different kind of flavors um, and also what you are eating it with or drinking it with you know and so there are a lot of other factors that actually comes into place so um, so this uh, area what we are working on to actually find a way to group people for example um, um, like some people like um, fl- uh, f- uh, flowery or fruity aroma, some people like more complex uh, kind of uh, like heavy sort of flavor so we we can actually group people and actually produce wines um, depending on their taste um, and how they perceive it. And as I said, people have different ways of perceiving things, and maybe you like something in the summer, you won't like it in the winter. So also, it can happen even day, during the daytime. You like something in the morning, but you don't like in, in the evening. So we, this is very careful, um, like carefully that we have to construct it. And um, But if we have enough data, at this moment we are just going to start it and actually collect a lot of data from people, um, their mi- microbiological aspect of things and how they perceive things. And then combining the, those information will help us to build some kind of um, synthetic... The beginning to start with kind of synthetic profile and then we can actually translate uh, that to um, natural conditions making it in the lab and then to the industry so there are a couple of steps to get there.
1: So you could literally for a New Zealand wine company you could using the yeasts that influence the, the whole process of fermentation you could come up with, for instance, uh, a Savion Blanc that is particularly appealing to the Chinese market, and maybe even a demographic, maybe
4: mm-hmm.
1: over 60s in the Chinese market as well.
4: Um. So, from planting Food, we have a very um, a good um, and established uh, custom, uh, consumer studies uh, research group, and uh, they have done um, f- some studies in that area. The gist of it was that you know some uh, ethnic, like for example, say. Um, Chinese people m- mostly like a little bit of floral kind of aromas in their um, wines. So yes, you can you can definitely do that. And there are yeast that can actually produce those kind of aromas too. When
1: it comes to taste, you've got other factors, obviously the, the, the fruit going in, the grapes. Um, a lot of wines are barrel aged, so you've got oak influencing the taste as well. So when it comes to yeasts, what sort of influence compared to all those other factors does yeast have? Is it, is it that important in the mix of
4: things? Yes, um, it is extremely important. So I would say um, based on the literature that we can see. And, and as, as far as I'm aware, at least 50% of aroma compounds or flavor or all the taste-related things comes from yeast. Wow. And other, 50, other 50%, other fifty because varietal effect is there, like what kind of grapes you're growing, where you're growing, and things like that. So, yes, yeast has a big, big role there. So, uh, for for example, if, if some of the compounds are coming from grapes itself or from the aging process, uh, but most of it will also come uh, from the yeast. So it's not only when they're doing the alcoholic fermentation, that time they're changing the flavor. So even when you're aging that, even you're filtering, you're trying to get rid of most of the yeast as you can, as much as you can. But uh, they also they also are there in the barrel, right? So during the ageing process, they do a lot of chemical interactions and chemi- chemical changes within the wine profile. And in addition to, you know, the role that uh, the material you're ageing in, uh, that wine is ageing in, have.
1: And there's a big industry, obviously, for commercial yeast. And I know Plant and Food has been involved in developing some of those yeasts for use in, in wine. We're also seeing the growth of natural wines, of wild fermented Chardonnays, that sort of thing. What's driving, do you think, that experimentation for natural wines?
4: Um, I think the natural wine is a big, um, is going to be a big market. Um, one of my colleague, Lily Stewart, she just came back from Spain um, and, and she was telling us um, that uh, how big the market is and she worked in a winery there that are actually specialising in producing natural wine. And so the, when we're seeing natural wine, you know, people are becoming more concerned about carbon footprint and a lot of other aspects of it. Um, so natural wine requires um, like least intervention when you're producing a commercial big scale or like industrial type of scale of wine that has a lot of, they do it, they try to make the recipe as consistent as possible so that is like you know what your uh, final product is going to be Um, but but when you're talking about natural wine that is kind of a little bit risky if something goes um, wrong within a day or two you can actually lose the whole batch of wine. But again, it's exciting as well because the complexity of natural wine is totally um, different. And it will have, because it's natural wine is fermented by a community of microorganisms rather than one yeast, so it has different kind of characters as well. So there is a lot of wow factor when you are experimenting with natural wine. So in New Zealand, we know that it, the, the a lot of um, uh, winemakers, especially who like actually doing experimenting, they are actually doing the natural wine. We even, uh, as part of our... Because we have a winery, a small winery um, from Planting Food in Blenheim, we actually sometimes do some... For example, we have leftover grape juice. We say, OK, let's ferment that you know so something like that then we tried to try to see how it turns out to be
1: so how did your your natural wine batch turn out
4: oh it was so yum so we made a rosé we had a lot of pinot noir juice and i was really um uh, not, not uh, keen to throw it away in the drain so we just fermented that and it was uh, lily made that and it was just amazing it had 3 months of aging and it's a perfect summer wine i would say
1: It's been a few months since I visited Simon and Ryan at the Froth Yeast Lab in Wellington. Since then, they've had a pretty successful crowdfunding campaign, raising over $30,000 from beer enthusiasts and companies interested in buying their yeasts. They're about to open a much larger lab at Avalon and Lower Hutt, which will really let them ramp up commercial production of yeasts for brewers around the country. I was keen to tag along on one of their yeast hunting expeditions. So I found myself on the fringes of Wellington on a beautiful day in February, surrounded by native bush, the perfect place to find yeast that could reflect the taste of New Zealand nature.
2: You can hear the cicadas and stuff around. we have seen a few keriru, uh and pui around, which is also a good sign. Those birds really like the high nectar flowers and fruits. Um, so there's some good species around as well, a bit of manuka that's in flower. Um, we've seen some muckle muckle as well. Um, so, yeah, it's feeling like there's a, some good potential in this area.
4: Mm,
3: definitely a lot of biodiversity around and almost like a, a warm sort of sweetness in the air. This is definitely the kind of area we like to sample from. So, I think we might get our kit out and see if we can take some samples. What are we looking for out here when you're collecting, hunting for
1: yeast? In an area like this full of native bush, what exactly are you looking for to get the best
3: results? So we're looking for plant species um, that that yeast might want to hang around on. Yeast uh, feeds on sugars, so we're looking for for plants and trees that are high nectar producing. So that comes from flowers, from fruits. We're looking for those natural sugars, uh, an enriched environment where the yeast is going to be thriving uh, and if we can collect some of those botanical samples, we're hoping that's where we'll find a, a, a good population of yeast. We're looking for one main yeast species in particular. That's called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. That's the common ale yeast. Uh, we're not likely to find lager yeast out here. That's the other common one. So, yeah, that's that's what we're, we're gunning for uh, today.
1: Tell us about... the the actual physical process you're going through here in collecting these yeast samples. What exactly are you doing? You've got some equipment here. Talk us through it.
2: Sure. So uh, the first part of the process is when we get out into the bush, we do a bit of a reconnaissance around. We like to kind of get a feel for the lay of the land, see what species are out there, see what variety of species are out there, um, and try and identify some real hot spots. At that point, we sort of map out sample areas uh, with GPS, that we can come back to them and once we've kind of got our determined sample areas it's a pretty straightforward process so um, some of the things we have we've got our handy uh, sterile gloves we've got some sterile sample bags and we've got a a bit of a a record form these are kind of the main things we use Uh, so when we find an area we there's a lot of data we want to record time we've taken the sample temperature of, of the general area any sort of weather situations basically just trying to gather as much data as we can so that once we process these samples in the lab we can start to look at trends and see what um, weather conditions were most favourable for for good yeast uh, what sort of temperatures were most favourable things like that so we fill out our our record form we also need to make sure we've got the correct uh, botanical species so we identify that based on uh, photographs and descriptors um, so that we're as certain as we can be that we're getting the right sample and then we don our gloves, we put those on, we give it an additional spray with some ethanol to make sure that it's it's very nice and sterile on the sample area. And we then approach the sample area with great care so that we're not contaminating um, the, the parts we're sampling. Um, with our sterile gloves we remove uh, a good handful of, of blossoms or fruits or whatever it is we're gathering, put those into our sterile sample bag, label it accordingly, seal it up and then... That's basically it until it gets back to the lab. And we try and get it back there as soon as possible so that it's in the best condition.
1: So you're literally just taking a cutting here. It's it's not a very invasive process. You're taking a cutting or some flowers, um, putting it in the bag. That's covered in yeast. We can't see it often, but you know that it's in the wild environment. It's going to be coated in yeast. That's all you need to start this process off.
2: Yeah, basically. We only need a very, very small amount. I mean, we're working with a microscopic fungus Um, and we just need to get enough of it so that we can get it back to the lab and then grow it up in there. So, yeah, it's very, very non-invasive. We're really conscious about making sure that the process we're using for taking these species is um, as caring as it can be. And how long does it
1: typically take, that the entire process, from gathering wild yeast to figuring out what they are, isolating them, DNA sequencing them? then actually
2: deciding whether you want to use it in a, in a product. How long does that typically take? Sure. So the, the process that we've developed um, has a six-month time span, um, so which is actually pretty fast um, compared to sort of how it would have been in, in centuries gone by with the older brewing traditions, thanks to modern science. Um, so, yeah, from us getting out in the field, taking the samples, it's six months to getting to the point where we have it DNA sequenced and from there it goes into sensory analysis.
1: Okay, you look particularly interested in in this particular um, species here. What have we got here?
2: Yeah, so what we've got here is um, makomako, or wineberry. Um, It's a species that, as the name suggests, produces a berry, and it was actually used back in the early early colonial days for making wine and such. Um, So that lends to suggest that there's good sugars um, associated there. You can see on on the plant there's lots of flowers around, Um, So it's a really good sign that there's a good good chance of yeast being there. So since we've found this nice plant, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand over the note-taking to uh, Simon here so that he can start recording some information. Um, We've already identified it against some some images. This is a species we've sampled before, so we're very confident in the identification. Um, So what I'm going to do is just go ahead and put on some uh, nitrile gloves. So we're basically making sure that we're not bringing any contaminants into the sample and then we'll give it an additional uh, sterile aspect just spraying some ethanol on it and so that will work to further sterilize any stuff that's remaining on there so rub those hands together and let the ethanol dry and now that that's sort of all pretty much dried off we've got our sample bag here which is labeled accordingly so that we can make sure we can track our samples open up the sample bag and then very gently draw it under the flowers, open it just enough to get the samples in and quickly go about picking some samples to put in there. And so while we're doing this, are trying not to breathe or anything too close to the plant to ensure that we don't contaminate. So. See in there, we've got a good amount of flowers. So once we're happy with that, we just roll up this sterile sample bag, make sure we don't bring any other uh, microbes in there than what we want. We seal that up. That goes back into our pack, and we'll run it straight down to the lab as soon as possible and get that processed and banked.
0: Thanks, Ryan. That was Ryan Carville, and we also heard from Simon Cook, and they are both with Froth Technologies. Yeast expert Fahana Pinu is from Plant and Food Research. And that story was produced for Our Changing World by Peter Griffin. This Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 13th of February 2020. You can listen again and find links to other stories produced by Peter Griffin on our webpage, page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. While you're there why not sign up for our weekly email newsletter? It's free! You can also listen to Our Changing World as a free podcast on your favourite podcast app. Just search for RNZ and you'll find plenty of offerings from us. As always, if you are able to rate and review us, we would really appreciate it. Many thanks. Stay in touch with us. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Science. And you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. Catch you next time. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.